Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Well, some of you may know that uh, Dana and I have four young children, and one of the things we love to do is, is to read, read stories together, and, and um, it's one of our favorite pastimes, especially once the Christmas tree is up and decorated like we did last night. We love to grab some blankets and curl up on the couch and, uh, and, and read stories together. And one of our favorite authors, who may be one of the deeper thinkers of our time, is Dr. Seuss. There's a book by Dr. Seuss called On Beyond Zebra that actually introduces our time together this morning quite well. And so I'd like to read just a few lines from this wonderful work of literature. And it's going to be on the screen so you can follow along. Uh, This is what Dr. Seuss writes. He says, said Conrad Cornelius O'Donnell O'Dell, my very young friend who is learning to spell. The A is for ape and the B is for bear. The C is for camel. The H is for hare. The M is for mouse and the R is for rat. I know all the 26 letters like that. Through to Z is for zebra. I know them all well, said Conrad Cornelius O'Donnell O'Dell. So now I know everything anyone knows from beginning to end, from the start to the close, because Z is as far as the alphabet goes. Then he almost fell flat on his face on the floor when I picked up the chalk and drew one letter more, a letter he never had dreamed of before. And I said, you can stop if you want with the Z, because most people stop with the Z, but not me. In the places I go, there are things that I see that I never could spell if I stopped with the Z. I'm telling you this because you're one of my friends. My alphabet starts where your alphabet ends. My alphabet starts with this letter called Yuz. It's the letter I use to spell Yuzimataz. You'll be sort of surprised what there is to be found once you go beyond Z and start poking around. So on beyond Z, it's high time you were shown that you really don't know all there is to be known. Well, sadly, I'm going to have to stop there. You're not going to find out if Conrad Cornelius O'Donnell O'Dell is going to make it on Beyond Z. But Dr. Seuss, what he's communicating in in this book is is what we're going to be talking about today. And that is that there are some experiences in life that they can't be contained by the 26 letters of our alphabet. There have been some discoveries, events over the course of human history that, that are beyond words, they're, they're beyond explanation, they're beyond belief. Occurrences that, like our friend, Conrad Cornelius O'Donnell O'Dell, we won't be able to wrap our minds around until we've moved on beyond Z. Like the day that Carl Ludwig Harding was peering into his telescope and he discovered this incredible sight, the Helix Nebula. It's a phenomenon so breathtaking that it's more often referred to by its nickname. You might have heard the eye of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. The Helix Nebula, uh, it certainly inspires awe and, and even praise for our maker. But, you know, it it never changed history. It it didn't alter the course of the human story. No, that significant impact would be reserved for what happened at the very first Christmas when something took place that legitimately was beyond words, beyond explanation, beyond belief. What happened on Christmas night is perhaps the most astonishing event that our world has ever witnessed and will ever witness. 
And, and what took place there is, is not something that is going to be fully comprehended by the human mind. It will not be captured by the 26 letters of our alphabet. And what I want us to do this morning is we're going to look at the Christmas story through the lens of one verse, okay, one sentence, a sentence where nearly every word is beyond explanation, is beyond belief. And you find this sentence in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. If you want to open up uh, to there, we're going to be looking at that verse. And, and this is what Matthew says in that one incredible verse. He says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, it's hard to get past the first couple of words of that verse without being shocked the first time you read it or hear it. Why? Because virgins don't give birth, right? Those words aren't supposed to be in the same sentence together. And yet that's what Matthew's just described in the four verses previous. He says that Mary is engaged to be married to Joseph, and yet she's found to be pregnant. And Joseph, he discovers this, and so he's a gracious and kind man, and so he decides he's going to divorce her quietly so that he wouldn't expose her to public humiliation and shame. That was his plan until the angel of the Lord shows up in one of Joseph's dreams and, and says, look, your fiance, she's telling the truth. She really is. This little one that's growing inside of her is from God, and so you take her home to be your wife. And Joseph does it. But a virgin giving birth isn't even the most unbelievable part of this verse. There's something else in this passage that is beyond words. It is beyond explanation. It is beyond belief. And, and that is the name that Matthew says this little baby would be called, Emmanuel, God with us. And you know what? Those words aren't supposed to be in the same sentence together either. Now, Matthew says that, that is what's amazing here. God with us, God in the flesh, God taking on human form. That is a truth too profound to comprehend. It's, it's a reality that, that we will never fully understand. It is not going to be captured by the 26 letters of our alphabet. And, and in fact, you know, when you look at, at the philosophies and the religions leading up to the time of Matthew, when he writes this, none of them dared to dream this, that that someone, fully God and fully man, born into a stable was even possible. You had Eastern religions that they believed that God was this impersonal force that permeated all things. And so sure, you know, maybe there was a few human beings who, who especially strongly manifested the divine. The Western religions of the Greeks and the Romans, they believed in hundreds of different personal deities. And, and so, yeah, perhaps one of those deities could temporarily disguise him or herself in some kind of a human appearance or form. But that's, that's not what we're seeing here. Emmanuel, 100% God, 100% man, as a baby. Yet yeah, no one dared to dream this big before. And, and, and even more importantly, when you look at Judaism, Judaism of all the world religions was the least likely, it, it had no place in its worldview for God in the flesh. A Jewish person was at least likely to, to believe that God could truly come to be with us. And, and it may surprise you because when you turn uh, into Matthew 1.23 in your Bibles or, or in your Bible app, what you see is, is that that's just a quote, right? Matthew is just repeating what was said 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah, the Jewish prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. You see, this news, it wasn't new at all. It was 700-year-old news. 
And yet, when you look at the Jewish scholars and religious leaders, when they taught on this, when they, when they wrote about this, what, certainly they believed and they understood Emmanuel means God with us, but they didn't think it meant literally. They said, you know, sure, it points to the Messiah that's going, going to come one day, and, and God is going to send this great leader, and, and God will be figuratively present with us through this leader. But, but they said it, it's, not, it's not literal. It's symbolic language. They didn't have, again, they didn't have this in their worldview. This, this Messiah, this Emmanuel would be specially sent by God, but he certainly wouldn't be God. And, and the reason is because the Jewish people, they saw God as, as unapproachable. God was, was untouchable. He was infinitely transcendent above and outside of his creation. They, they believed that the God of the heavens was no more approachable than the sun in the sky. They wouldn't pronounce the, the name of God, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. They wouldn't even spell the letters. How would they ever be able to speak to God face to face? Judaism, it was the last, the last place you'd find people who were really expecting, truly looking for God to come, to show up, to be with us. And, but Matthew, he declares, he says, look, look, no, 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 you're missing it. He says that that's, you're missing this. It is not less of God for him to come to be with us. It is more of God than you could ever imagine. You have to think bigger thoughts of God, not smaller ones, to embrace God as a baby. This is, it is beyond words. It is beyond explanation. It is beyond belief. We're not talking about this promise of Emmanuel being, uh, you know, a God who's, who's disguised in some kind of a human appearance. We're not talking about someone who especially manifests the, the attributes of the divine. We're not talking about God being symbolically present through Jesus. No, no, it's much greater than that. This, this Emmanuel, this name, it means God come down, God with us. It means that the God of the heavens, that he encased himself in a human embryo, he became smaller than a grain of sand, all but invisible to the naked eye. It means the all-powerful God chose to become utterly powerless. The uncreated one decided he would be created in the womb of a woman. The self-sufficient great I am decides he will be totally, utterly dependent upon her for survival. The God who shakes the whole world, who flung the stars into the heavens, he can't even hold his own head up straight. You see what Matthew's revealing to us? You see what he's telling us in this one little revolutionary verse? He's saying, you're going to need some new letters for this one, Conrad, Cornelius, O'Donnell, Odell. You're going to have to get way beyond Z. This far surpasses even your wildest dreams. That's what Matthew's telling us. But you see... That's been God's plan all along. And when you look at the Old Testament, when you read the story of the Old Testament, it is a story of God restoring what had been lost in Eden when he would take evening walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. Ever since sin severed the relationship between man and God, you see God is planning and he's scheming to be with us once again. And you hear hints, you hear whispers of the coming incarnation when God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt and, and he, he travels with them as a cloud by day and a, and a pillar of fire by night. And his people, Israel, they, they said, God before us, God behind us, sure. You know, I believe that, I saw that. 
But then he inches ever closer to us when he instructs Israel to build a tabernacle where his glory will explode for all of his people to see. And his people, they said, God among us? God in our midst? God near us? Yeah, I get that. But then on that Christmas night, the angel of the Lord shows up and he says, no, no, no. Emmanuel is here as a baby. This is not God before and behind. This is not God among and near. No, this is God with us. This, this is incredible. And the people of God said, there's no way. This is too wonderful to be true. And God's reply was, oh, it's even more magnificent than that. But it's also true. You, you see, this, this wonder of the incarnation, God taking on human flesh, fully human fully God, born as an infant. It, it is such an amazing truth that some scholars argue that it is the ultimate miracle of the Christian faith. That the supreme, they, they argue that the supreme miracle of the Christian faith is not what happened on Resurrection Sunday when, when Jesus was raised from the dead. They say, no, it happened, the, the greatest miracle of Christianity happened 33 years before that when the beginningless, omnipotent creator of the cosmos took on a fully human nature. One of the theologians who, who argues this, who says this is, this is the ultimate, this is the greatest miracle of Christianity, his name is J.I. Packer. He's a theologian, and this is what he writes about the incarnation. I love how he says it. He says, the really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man. The Word became flesh. The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby unable to do more than lie there and stare and wiggle and make some noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to speak like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality, and the more you think about it, the more overwhelming it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. You see, many people, they, they read uh, the Gospels and they see the miracles that Jesus performed there, and, and, and it's easy to say, you know, I, I just can't believe it. I, I can't believe that he really was able to do all of that. I, I find it hard to buy that he could heal all that sickness or that Jesus could rise from the dead. But listen to the logic. If God was born in a dirty stable as an infant, if Jesus was able to overcome the infinite distance between man and God, then why would it be incredible to believe that he could overcome the distance between sickness and health or between life and death? You see, nothing in all the Gospels, no, no, in all of Scripture is difficult to believe once you've accepted the truth of the Incarnation. Nothing is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation, God coming to be with us. There's nothing better than this. The resurrection, oh, that... That was a glorious, life-changing moment. But it just makes sense once you have bought, once you've accepted, once you've believed that the God of the universe was cooing as a little baby on that Christmas night. Talk show host and atheist uh, Larry King, he was once asked, if you could interview anybody, if you could sit across the table from anybody across all of history, who would it be? He said, Jesus Christ. And they said, why? What would you ask him? Why would you want to interview Jesus Christ? He said, I'd, I'd want to ask him this one question. He says, I'd like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. 
What insight, huh? If Jesus was virgin born, if he really was Emmanuel, God with us, that would define history for all of us, wouldn't it? But you know what? If that's true, it wouldn't just define history for us. It would define our lives in at least two pivotal ways. If the incarnation is true, first, and first it means this. It means that we are worse off. We are more sinful than we ever imagined. We are more sinful than we ever thought possible. You see, the greater the problem, the greater the need for help. And we know this, right? If you have a bike that goes missing, you call 311. If you have a child that goes missing, you dial 911. Why? The greater the problem, the greater the need for help. If you have a flat tire, AAA, they'll have a mechanic out there maybe within the hour. But if you have a charter bus full of people hanging over the edge of the 183 flyover right out here, you will have a helicopter, you'll have five fire engines, 10 ambulances, and 15 patrol cars there within a matter of minutes. And they will stop traffic for thousands of people for as long as it takes to save every single one of the people on that bus. You see, the incarnation, what it does is it proves to us that God couldn't just send an officer when they became available to help us with our sin. This was not a call for roadside assistance. Our sin is not a 311 call. No, the incarnation proves to us that we are a bus teetering over the edge of a bridge because of our sin. The incarnation shows us that there was nothing we could ever do about our sin. It was going to take one thing and one thing only. That was God come down, God with us to take that sin on himself and do away with it on the cross. We'd never be able to break the power of sin. God had to do that for us. That's, that is what, what the incarnation shows us, is what it proves to us. And, and so, so, I mean, again, if, if you're a believer, certainly we still have the presence of sin in our lives, right? It's still, it's still lingering. It's still there. It's still chasing after us. But, but let's never think that we're going to be able to run from that sin. We're going to be able to outrun it, or we're going to be able to beat this thing on our own. What's it going to take? It's going to take what it took on Christmas Day. It's going to take God coming down and rescuing us from it. We will never be able to do it on our own. And so do you see what this means? It means that God, he's not up in heaven, you know, tapping his toe, waiting for you to overcome your pride or your vanity or your bitterness. No, God is patiently waiting, but you know what he's waiting for? He's waiting for you to give up. He's waiting for you to stop trying to beat this on your own and to say, God, I, I'm done. I, I am too weak. I am too broken. I am too helpless to ever do anything but lose in this area of my life with this sin. And, and the only way I can get better is if you come down again. That's what God is waiting for us to do. He's waiting for us to come to the end of ourselves to remember that Christmas night when God showed up and to say, you know what? Only a God who is, who's able to become a little baby, only a God who is willing to break into my world has the power and has the kindness to help me with this sin, to do something about it. Otherwise, I'm dead. I can't do anything without him. God, you are more powerful than my pride. You are stronger than my vanity. You are greater than my bitterness, and you are here. God's waiting for us to say that to him, to call those words out to him. You see, Emmanuel, it means we are worse off than we ever imagined. But Emmanuel also means that, that when we're stuck, 
when we're hopeless, when, when we get to that place, when we sink to that place where, where we say there's nothing more that I can do here, that is right where God wants us to be, where we say, God, you're going to have to intervene. That's the only hope I have. That's what God's waiting for. The incarnation, it proves to us that we are worse off than we ever imagined. But the incarnation, this wonder of wonders, it also means something else. It also means that you are more loved than you ever imagined. Someone loves you beyond what you ever thought possible, beyond words, beyond explanation, beyond belief. Because on our darkest days, in the deepest parts of our souls, we, we all wrestle with that, that nagging, that terrifying question, is there anyone who would really love me if they knew everything about me? You know, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you're from, if you're, you're man or woman, child or, or, or adult, if you're humble or proud or, or successful or struggling, it doesn't matter. We all have days where we, where we wonder, is there someone who could truly love me? Even if they knew everything I ever thought, everything I've ever done. You know, for a righteous person, perhaps someone might dare to die. But Christ died for us while we were still his enemies. While we had nothing but hate in our hearts for him, the Son of God gave himself up for us. And, and even as God, he could see us as under a microscope, while, while we could only see ourselves dimly from a distance, even as God knew the depths of our depravity in a way that we can never hope to understand, he didn't give us a principle to live by. He didn't give us a law to follow. He gave us himself. That's what he came to do, to give us himself. He came down. He condescended to us like a parent who gets down on two knees so they can look at their child eye to eye. He came down to us so he could tell us himself, so he could show us, so he could prove to us once and for all that there is there is someone who knows everything about us and yet still loves us. Someone who loves us in a way that is beyond words, beyond explanation, beyond belief. God loves you with a love that is on beyond Z. Conrad, Cornelius, O'Donnell, Odell. You see, there's a passage later on in Isaiah in chapter 49 where or Israel, they're in a, a painful and chaotic time. They're feeling hopeless, and they're wondering if anybody loves them. They're wondering if they're alone in this hostile place. And Isaiah writes that God, he gets down on two knees, and he takes Israel's face in his hands, and he looks them in the eye, and this is what he says. He says, look, even, even if a mother could forget her own child, I'll never forget you. I love you too much. And then Isaiah writes that God, he holds out his hands. And he says, look, look at my hands. He says, your name is engraved on the palms of my hands. That's what God says to Israel. You see, that's what Jesus came here to do. He was born here with us. He walked among us. He taught us. And then he went to a cross for us. And when he stretched out his hands to pay for your sins, they took these awful spikes and your name got engraved on his wrists. And even today, if you were to see his hands, you would see that, that those marks from those nails, they're still there. And why? 
is so that you would never have to wonder again if there's someone who knows everything about you and yet still fully loves you. He could never forget you. He could never stop loving you. Your name is engraved on the palms of his hands. That's why he came. Well, let's go to him in prayer. Would you pray with me? For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.